0: If you were uh, anticipating uh, a meeting this following worship about revitalization, that's been uh, rescheduled to the third of March. I just, or excuse me, the tenth, um, two weeks from today. So that'll be after. There'll be more communication about that. All who are able are invited to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. The Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Mark. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. The Angels the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever, The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. When you were a kid, did you ever want anything so badly? That you couldn't think about anything else? You, you, you were dreaming about it. It was so vivid. You sure had to be true, right? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Did you, did you have that sort of Ralphie Parker, Red Ryder, BB gun thing going on? Everything else takes a backseat to your obsession. But if I I phrase it as an obsession automatically, people get a little defensive, right? I I have goals and and desires, not obsessions. Obsessions are for people who fixate on things like Pizzagate, you know, listen to Infowars. All right, so fine, I'll I'll back off the obsession. Let's say, did you ever pursue something so single-mindedly that nothing else matters? You don't, you don't give your family maybe all the time they deserve. Uh, start thinking about your job and, 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 and it starts kind of seeming like an inconvenient barrier to the thing that you really want to be doing. Or uh, you know, you're just in this reverie and time slips away and you, you, you can't be sure just how long you've been checked out for. Has that ever happened to you? Something that you are so passionate about? When I was uh, in grad school, I've told some of you before that uh, I was given a computer, my first. It came from a woman at the church where I was serving as a youth minister. And her husband had been uh, an engineer uh, for Sperry. And he died unexpectedly leaving this really nice computer, uh, sitting in the study, just collecting dust. Well, she knew that I was getting ready to write my thesis, and so she asked if I'd like to have it. And I said, yeah, <laughs> of course. So at the time, uh, this thing was really a premium piece of hardware. It ran MS-DOS. It had a 20-gigabyte hard drive. And if that wasn't enough, I was introduced to this this program, this app, that I found absolutely amazing. It was called WordPerfect, and it was for word processing, you know, way back uh, in the day. And what I found so fascinating about it was you you, you, you could type stuff, and then you could just go back and erase it without ever touching a piece of paper. I mean, you could, you could, whole pages and chapters, you, you could just move them around. But they called it cutting and pasting, right? Which I figured was entirely up my alley because I grew up in an analog age and I could cut and paste with the best of them, with, you know, actual scissors and paste, so, so word processing was like it was. It, to me, it was like having a personal genie, right, available to sort of magically produce your every wish. It, it, it had this thing that you could you could go through your whole paper and it would check your spelling for you. <laughs> Gosh, I think the phrase that the kids use these days is spell check. And 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 and. You may not appreciate this if you, if, if you were not really into academia, but you could, you could take a footnote and change it, move it around, and you wouldn't have to type, retype the whole thing. The program would just do it for you. Oh, Anyway. So it was such a big deal because I'd learned how to type, I went through high school, college, and most of my first uh, master's degree pounding away on a typewriter. So the beautiful sorcery of word processing was like Disney magic to me. It immediately made everything I thought I knew about writing obsolete. But it wasn't only the word processing. I mean, what really, really sort of sold me on this new technology was that I could play Dungeons and Dragons right on the computer. And to a nerdy grad student, this was an epiphany like sort of, like discovering the cure for cancer. Okay? I played night and day, literally all night and all day. And if it weren't for my wife doing an intervention, archeologists might one day have found, found my remains in Northeast Tennessee wrapped around that Sperry monitor with a Pepsi bottle scattered around my shallow grave, sprinkled with Dorito dust and despair. But Susan did intervene and she said, you, you, you got a problem. And I said, that's ridiculous. It's just a game. I could quit anytime I want. And she crossed her arms and she stepped in between me and the computer. And I said, uh, excuse me, you're in my way. That was not the thing to say. And she didn't budge. And I said, look, woman, let me pass. Those orcs aren't going to kill themselves. So I mean, yeah, it was pretty pathetic. (laughs) I was pretty pathetic. I wanted to play that game so badly that I quit eating meals, quit going outside, even quit talking to my wife. And even when I was away from the game, that's all I'd be thinking about was these sort of big battle campaigns and what kind of spells I could cast and how many hit points I'd have to sacrifice if I wanted to kill that dragon. Now, for one brief period, my reality was shaped entirely by my desire to play that one dumb game. The rest of my existence was blinkered, overwhelmed, lost by that single impulse. Now, I suspect... That that's the kind of longing that gets Peter in trouble in our gospel for this morning. The disciples have been following Jesus for a while now, and Jesus stops to check in with them a little bit. And he says, you know, you've been with me now for some time. You must have heard word on the street. Who is it? Who do people say that I am? And they all jump in with names that they think are going to impress the boss, you know, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. To be compared uh, with these folks, of course, is a compliment, but, but, but Jesus, he gets a little bit more personal and he says, okay, well, who do you say that I am? Now Peter, who is sort of the Hermione Granger of the disciples, beats everybody to the punch and he stabs his hand up into the air. And he says, you are the Messiah. Now, throughout the years, we've had occasion to mention several times, I think, that, that, that Christians typically have tended to view talk a, a, of a Messiah through a kind of spiritual lens, that, that, that somehow Messiah equates to kind of the second person of the Trinity a divine figure going through the earthly motions for our benefit. But in fact, uh, first century Palestine, uh, prior to the time when the temple was destroyed, doesn't really give us much evidence that there was a general expectation for a Messiah, the, the Messiah. That's not to say that there wasn't such thing as messianic hope, But that the hope of a Messiah was always tied to what we called in fifth grade social studies current events. Right? It was a way of trying to help the population of God's people throw off their oppressors. God God, God would raise up a Messiah uh, who would be an authority figure militarily, politically, who could once and for all help the population overthrow their Roman oppressors. Now, the type of Messiah would, would be a big deal because it, it, it would begin to inspire the, peop- uh, the people out in the countrysides, right? I mean, they were out they're feeling beleaguered by a Roman uh, overlord who was bleeding them dry. So when Jesus asks Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. The kind of Messiah that Peter's talking about is the one who will, who will inspire the peasant population to rise up and throw off the bonds of oppression and so it becomes clear that by this point the disciples think that they're somehow following Spartacus right in a great uprising of the oppressed against their oppressors they think they know what Jesus is all about and it's really, it's kind of hard to blame them, the disciples, because if you know anything about Palestine and Jesus' time, you realize that, that the people that Jesus comes from, his, his own people, are the, the, the downtrodden, the folks who've been cast aside, the peasants who are attracted to him are all people who've drawn the short straw in life. Most of them are subsistence farmers, they're local artisans, they're fishermen, day laborers. And almost all of these people are struggling day after day just to find enough resources to put food in their mouths. And because of all of the pressures from mounting debt that Jesus and his neighbors feel so acutely, they often have to choose whether or not they're going to try to keep the family together or to send off some of the kids to act as day laborers to raise more money. Because they're, with their debt burden, they can no longer hold it all together. And all of this, this cycle of indebtedness, the destitution, the, the breaking up of families and, and their family farms, all of this could be laid at the feet of the people in power. So the thought that the Palestinian version of some kind of radical revolutionary who was getting ready to start an insurgent campaign against the source of their pain, that must have been really intoxicating for Uh, People who were feeling so, so pressured. You can imagine Peter clinging to the image of Jesus as Malcolm X, right? He says with pride, You are the Messiah. You're the one. But then Jesus, this sort of blows up the whole dream, and he says, It begins to teach that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes be killed, and after three days rise again. And you can see sort of the horrified looks on the faces of the disciples as they try to digest this little nugget. Just to back up there, did you just... You're going to suffer and die, right? No. See, that, you're not, that's not supposed to be how messiahs work, right? Messiahs aren't supposed to suffer and die. The way this works is you, you build the following like you've been doing. And when the time's right, you give a rousing pre-battle speech. And we rise up and get rid of those Romans once and for all. Because if you don't have some kind of master plan to deal with the Romans breathing down our necks, well, then... Pretty soon, we're all going to find ourselves circling the drain. Peter says what everybody else is thinking. He says, no way. I I would never let that happen to you, Jesus. You're you're, you're too important to the cause to let you die. And of course, Jesus responds with exasperation. He says, no, 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 no. That's not the way any of this goes down. Get behind me, Satan. But you see, I have to think that what Jesus says next is what really gives the disciples heartburn, right? Because he says, if any want to become my followers, let them take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their own life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in glory. Now, you may wonder why Jesus' disciples would have taken this spoiler quite so badly. I mean, after all, Jesus does tell his followers that they're going to have to take up their crosses. So, I mean, really, why is that a, a big deal? We, we, we've all got our crosses to bear, don't we? Right? I mean, that, that, that's, that's sort of what we've grown up hearing, isn't it? Ah, that little Tiffany, she's such a pistol. Her mother and I have always said that she's our little cross to bear. Wayward children, problem spouses, overbearing parents, demanding bosses, arthritis, the heartbreak of psoriasis, male pattern baldness. I mean, all of these things and more are things that bring suffering, and they are commonly referred to as crosses that we bear. But that's not quite right, is it? I mean, Jesus isn't talking about the cross as a symbol of just any garden variety suffering. He's talking about the death-dealing power of the state to impose its will on anybody with enough courage or enough gullibility to question it. Ched Myers, commentator, says that um, the threat to punish by death is the bottom-line power of the state. Fear of this threat is what keeps the dominant order intact. I think we know that. But then he adds, Jesus has revealed that his messiahship means a political confrontation with, and not the rehabilitation of, the imperial state. Those who wish to come after him will have to identify themselves with his subversive program. In other words, according to Jesus, taking up our cross is is a willingness to confront the systems that hoard power And disadvantage the defenseless. Exploit those who are vulnerable. Because crosses have always been reserved for those who pose a threat to the people in charge. This willingness to say no to the ruling powers, Jesus wants everybody to understand is, is always fraught with the reality that the ruling authorities have a nasty habit of killing those whom they feel threatened by. See, our cross to bear is a cross. It, it is a concession that our willingness to speak up on behalf of those who've been oppressed, a concession that our willingness to fight for justice, for the powerless, for whom justice is always just a nice word used, by people with power. This, this is the cross we bear. The one that we take up willingly to follow Jesus wherever he goes. See, our cross to bear like Jesus before us, it's not just a question of Suffering our own private indignities, it's a question of who we're willing to suffer those indignities uh, on behalf of. In a world that's obsessed with our own private longings, following Jesus frees us from ourselves and it redirects our longings, focusing them no longer on ourselves, but on the people who need our passion most. The people who have been despised and rejected, the the, the misused and forgotten, the voiceless and the vulnerable. In other words, the people who are always at the mercy of the folks who make crosses. See, our cross to bear is a holy obsession not with saving ourselves, but with giving ourselves away for others. And that's an obsession that actually seems worth it. Amen.